very place where it was said of them, you are not my people. There they shall be called the sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel are as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And Isaiah, as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us an offspring, we would be as be, we would be like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then that the Gentiles who did not pursue a righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued the law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based upon works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and as we are dealing with the um, with what is weighty things in the book of Romans and particularly chapter 9, I pray that you will open up our eyes to see and our ears to hear and our hearts to receive your word to us. That it isn't an academic exercise or stays in the realm of, of our thinking, but that we might see the goodness in it and, um, and what it is that you have to say to us. And I pray that we might see, like the song we just sang, that we might see and feel deeply and know fully that holiness, righteousness is Christ in us, that He is our righteousness, that we have nothing else but Jesus. And so, Father, help us be our teacher now this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All of life is, is a struggle. If you think about it, life is a struggle for righteousness. Most of what we do in life is an attempt to establish some kind of a sense of righteousness it's uh, establishing some kind of sense of value or significance or identity, even reputation. And so a lot of, of life is this way. It's about, in a large part, about trying to justify ourselves. I remember when I was uh, probably about 12 years old, my sister, my older sister, was 16. And so she made me get in the car with her and we drove to the Gwinnett Place Mall. And she was on a quest to find a um, uh, a makeup bag, like a traveling makeup bag. And so she was on this quest to find this perfect bag. And so we go to the store and we get to where they have the bags and she's looking through the bags and she finds one that she really likes. Can you, this has some echo. Is there a way to turn that? Can you all hear that echo or is it just me? 
Okay, well, I'll, I'll deal with it. That's fine. Uh, so anyways, uh, she, uh, so she, she finds this bag that she really likes. She loves this bag. And so we've been there for about 30 minutes. So for a 12-year-old boy being in a store for 30 minutes looking at makeup bags is not ideal. So I'm ready to go. So I'm excited that she's finding this bag that she likes. And so she's made her decision. And her decision was we need to go to every store in the mall, look at every bag that is out there, and make sure that this one is the perfect bag. So... What am I to do? I have to go with her. So we walk around to every store in the mall that could possibly sell a makeup bag. She looks at every makeup bag that there is at every store, and we're doing this for about three hours. Uh, and so we finally get to the store where the makeup, uh, to the last store, to the last makeup bag, and she looks at it, and I am ready to go, and she makes her decision. And what is her decision? Well, I really like that first bag that I found. We need to go back to that first store. So what do we do? We trek all the way back to that first store. She gets back to the store. She finds the bag. She looks at the bag one more time. She wants to make sure that this is the right decision to find this bag. Three hours into this, and she makes her decision, and her decision is, I'm not buying a bag. Let's go. For a 12-year-old boy, I was about to lose my mind. I can't believe we spent three hours looking for the perfect bag. But for her, she couldn't justify the decision of buying the bag. For her, she couldn't justify spending her money on this bag. It was not perfect. For her, it was not the right decision. And in a lot of ways, life is like that. It is often like that. Life is about trying to justify our decisions. It's a struggle for righteousness, for value, for significance. And so today we're going to continue our study in the book of Romans in chapter 9. Over the last several weeks, if you've been with us, JP has walked us through Romans 9. He's walked us through the very weighty and difficult doctrine of election. And Romans 9 is often called the most humbling chapter in all of Scripture because in Romans 9, you come face to face with the sovereignty of God in election, that God himself is the final authority in salvation, that he is under no obligation to save anyone, that God freely and sovereignly chooses whom will be saved, and salvation is wholly and completely dependent upon God's mercy. And we struggle with that. We struggle with that because it strikes at the very heart of our sinful pride. We struggle with it because we want to earn our way. We struggle with it because we want to justify ourselves. But let's take a second and step back and think about why Paul is writing Romans 9. If you remember, Paul is writing to the, to the church that is in Rome. The church in Rome is made up of both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And the vast majority of those who are being saved are Gentiles. But all the promises that God had given, he had given to Israel in the Old Testament. And Paul talks about this in, in chapter 9, verse 4 and 5, when he says that they are Israelites, talking about his fellow kinsmen, Jews, that they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenant, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and it is through their race, according to the flesh, that the Christ, or the Messiah, would come, who is God over all forever. Amen. And so what is going on, the church is asking, how is it that so many are Gentiles are being saved, but so few Jews are being saved? And the way that Paul answers this, he answers the concern that is brought up and he establishes in verse six of chapter nine, but it's not as though the word of God had failed. 
You see, the concern that it was, if the promises of God cannot fail, then what about Israel? Because it seems like God's promises has failed them. So this is the concern. Has God's word failed? Which I think leads to a deeper concern behind that concern. And the current concern is this. Is God not able to fulfill his promises? Is God powerless to fulfill the promises that he's given? Or maybe worse, is he not willing to fulfill those promises? Is he not willing to do that? Has he decided to no longer be faithful to his word? Which is a huge concern because if that is the case, then what hope do we have even sitting here? If God is not willing or not able to fulfill his promises, then what hope do we have sitting here? Can we really trust God to keep his promises? And the way that Paul answers this is Romans 9 is he, he explains that God's word has not failed. And so what I want to try to do this morning is, is three things. The first thing is I want to try to briefly finish up Paul's first uh, reason for why God's word has not failed. And we, we see this reason in verse 1 through verse 29. Paul is arguing that God's word has not failed based upon election. And JP has spent the last three weeks unpacking the purposes of God in election. And so what I want to do, and that's in verse 21 through, or verse 1 through 23. And so what I want to do is finish that up by summarizing verses 24 through 29. And then I want to look at Paul's second reason for why he gives, for why the word of God has not failed. And that begins in verse 30 of chapter 9. And Paul is making a shift, and hopefully we will see this. Paul begins to make a shift in his argument. He begins to move from the doctrine of divine election to human responsibility. His argument goes from verse 30 all the way to the end of chapter 10. Now, we're not going to cover all that, but that's the, that is the, uh, where his argument, his second reason here that he gives. And then the third thing I want us to think about is how do we respond to this? Specifically, how do we respond to God's sovereignty and election and the perishing of, of those who are, who are lost? How do, we, how do we reconcile? How do we respond to those, those two things? And so let's think first about the, the summary here of the end of Paul's first argument. Now, according to verse 6, Paul states that the word of God has not failed. God is faithful to keep his promises. And he says in verse 6, not all who are descendant of Israel belong to Israel. And so God's promises have not failed because God's promises are not based upon ethnicity or nationality or pedigree. He talks about this in verse 8. It is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but it's the children of promise that are counted as offspring. And so it's not based upon ethnicity or nationality, as JP has, has explained to us. Paul, Paul also says that God's word is not failed because God's promises are not based on our works, verse 11. They're not based on works, but on him who calls. And then he says in verse 16, so it doesn't depend on human will or exertion, but it depends on God who has mercy. So in a nutshell, salvation, the promises of God, does not depend on your ethnicity. It does not depend on your religiosity. It does not depend on your morality. It does not depend on your efforts or even your will. Salvation depends wholly and completely dependent upon the mercy of God. And he demonstrates this again and again in, uh, throughout this, the text. 
In verse 7 through 13, he refers to the patriarchs. In verse 14 through 18, he takes us to the story of the Exodus. And in verses 19 through 29, he's referring to various prophets to explain and support this truth. But then Paul does something very, very significant in verse 24, which is what I want us to see and to think about. Verse 24, Paul says, Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. That is massively important that Paul has that statement in there. Think about this for just a moment. Who are the, who are, who are the us that Paul's referring to? He's referring to the vessels of mercy that, J, that JP was talking about last week in verse 22 through 23. So Paul here is saying, even us who are the vessels of mercy prepared for, beforehand for glory, even us whom God has called. Even us whom God has called. So he's tying it back up to the doctrine of election in verse 11 when he says, In order that the purposes of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. He called uh, Isaac and not Ishmael. He, call, he, he called Jacob and not Esau. And now Paul says, Even us whom he has called also from the Gentiles. What Paul is saying is that God has chosen to show his mercy to Gentiles as well. Gentiles are the benefactor, benefactors of God's promises. God's word has not failed because it does not matter. It's not a matter of physical descent, but a matter of God's calling. And he calls both Jews and Gentiles. The promises of God are for Jews and Gentiles. It's for those whom God calls. And so we get to verse 25 to 29, and Paul again is supporting this by taking us back to the Old Testament. He first goes to Hosea. He refers to Hosea to talk about this inclusion of the Gentiles, why so many Gentiles are coming in. And then he goes to Isaiah to talk about why so few Jews are being saved. And in Hosea is a prophecy that, that is given to Israel that's about to be uh, taken into exile as a, as a form of judgment. And in, in there, there is a promise that, that, that God gives that you who were not my people will be my people. God is calling them back. You who were not loved will be loved. In that place that it was called, you are not my people, you shall be called the sons of the living God. And what Paul does here is he says, this is true also of the Gentiles. They were not God's people, but now they are. They were not loved, but now they are beloved. They were not sons of God, but now they are sons of the living God. And then he goes into Isaiah in verses 27 through 29, and he talks about the remnant that God uh, is, is going to save. So Isaiah is prophesying about against the Jews who are in exile because of their rebellion, and God promises in verse 27 that only a remnant will be saved. And that it was only by God's mercy that the, towards the remnant that prevents Israel from being completely wiped away like Sodom and like Gomorrah. And so God's promise then to make known the riches of his glory on vessels that he has prepared beforehand for glory includes the Gentiles. That the true Israel, the children of promise, the sons of God, the uh, those who are counted as Abraham's offspring are both Jews and Gentiles. God's word has not failed 
because the children of Abraham, the true Israel, are many Jews and the remnant of of the uh, many Gentiles and the remnant of Jews. And so that leads Paul into verse 30, which is his question. Then what shall we say then to this? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, but attained righteousness, that is a righteousness by faith, but Israel who pursued the law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? There's a shift here that Paul is making in his argument. He moves from this issue of election to an issue of righteousness. Why is it, why is he making this shift? He's making this shift because righteousness is required for salvation. Righteousness is required for salvation. So he's asking the question, how then do people become right with God? How how do we become right with God? How do we attain righteousness? And what Paul says in these next verses is that there's two ways to righteousness, but there's only one way that actually attains righteousness. There's only one way that it happens. Look with me in verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel who pursued the law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based upon works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, but whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear the wit, bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, or you could say the righteousness that comes from God, and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. It is not enough that God elects us to salvation. Righteousness must be attained. Yes, absolutely, God acts sovereignly in salvation. Salvation is wholly dependent upon God's mercy and not our merit. It is God who freely and sovereignly chooses. Election, though, must be accompanied by righteousness. Righteousness must be attained. John Piper uh, refers or, or speaking on this says says it this way in a way that only John Piper can say it. God is the decisive actor in salvation. When God chooses unconditionally an unworthy sinner who you like you and me to be His child to be saved from His wrath, given everlasting joy, He cannot bring us into fellowship without any righteousness. God is holy and perfect and just. He hates sin. His righteousness blazes against all God-belittling attitudes and actions. Imperfection of any kind cannot approach His blazing holiness without being punished. The only person who stands before God without being destroyed are perfectly righteous persons. And the problem is that there are no perfectly righteous persons except one. Righteousness must be attained. So how is it attained? Paul gives us two ways to righteousness, 
but only one way attains it. He says that there is a way of righteousness that is received by faith in Christ. And then there is a way of righteousness that is sought after by pursuing the law. Verse 30. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. You see, many Gentiles, as we said, were being saved. But how is this the case? How is it that they're being saved? They don't have the law of God. They don't have all the covenants and the, and the sacrifices and everything that Paul's already talked about. They don't have any of that. Sure, they might be moral people, and they're probably religious in some form or another, but they were not pursuing the God of, of the Bible. They were not pursuing a right relationship with God. Most of them probably didn't even or have never even heard about the God of the Bible. So how is it then that they attain a righteousness that they did not pursue? How is this possible? They received righteousness that comes from God by faith. In other words, someone spoke the scriptures to them. They hear the gospel by God's grace and they believe in Jesus. Romans ten seventeen. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.18 For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Romans 1.16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So the Gentiles receive a righteousness that comes from God by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. They stumbled onto it, as it were, like treasure in a field, Matthew thirteen fourteen, Like the story of the tax collector and the Pharisee in Luke 18, the Pharisee sought validation for his own religious performance, while the tax collector seeks what he knew he could never earn. It was the tax collector, not the Pharisee, that went home justified. It was the tax collector, not the Pharisee, who attained righteousness. Righteousness is required. The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained it by faith. But the Jews who have a zeal for God pursued a righteousness, but they failed to attain it. Why? Verse 31. But that Israel who pursued a law... Would lead, that would lead to righteousness did not succeed by reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it in faith. But as if it were based upon works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is, was written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stumbling, uh, stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Notice in verse 32, the two little words, as if. Why did the Jews not attain righteousness? It was because they pursued the law as if righteousness could be attained by works. They treated the law as if it offered a right relationship with God by obeying the law. They behaved as if the message of the law was work harder, do your best, take care, and try to achieve a flawless obedience to God and everything. You see, they had a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, 
because being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God, they tried to establish their own righteousness, and therefore they did not submit themselves to God's righteousness. They failed to see that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. They failed to see that all the promises of God find their yes and their amen in Jesus. They failed to see that the purpose of the law was to point us by faith to Jesus. They pursued the law as if the law was all about what we do for God. Rather than seeing the law as actually responding to what God has done for us. So rather than receiving righteousness given by God as a gift of His grace, they sought to establish their own righteousness by their religious performance. In other words, they sought to justify themselves before God by what they do. But the thing is, is you cannot pursue the law for righteousness. No one can justify themselves before God. No one can make themselves righteous by their performance or by what they do or even by their obedience to the law. Romans 3.20, Paul tells us, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. To pursue the law, to pursue obedience to the law apart from faith in Christ is itself a form of of unrighteousness. That's what Paul is saying. To perform or pursue religious obedience as a means to attain a righteousness is, apart from faith in Christ, is of itself unrighteousness. And if we're honest about it, or at least as I am honest and I think about it, I often struggle with this. Because in my sinfulness, I continue to try to justify myself before God and before others and even before myself. Every day I struggle with this. Think about this with me for just a moment. How do you try to present yourself in different ways and in different contexts? How do you try to present yourself so that you might feel better about yourself? Or so that you might look better before others? Or even before God. How do you do that? All of life is about, often is about trying to justify who we are and what we do. Why is that? Why is our mode of operation our default to try to justify ourselves before others? Well, if you go back with me to the garden... God creates the Garden of Eden, and He creates everything, and He places Adam and Eve in the Garden. And there is perfect relationship between them and God, and between each other, and between all of creation. And it's in the Garden that Adam and Eve received their sense of righteousness and well-being and identity from God. And this is the way that it was supposed to be. They were naked, and they were not ashamed. There was no need for them to justify their actions or to justify their decisions. They did not feel a sense that they were without something or that they needed to gain something. There was shalom. There was perfect harmony. But as you know, what happened? They were deceived. And they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They fell into sin and they began to doubt God's heart and God's word and God's work and God's provision. They began to doubt God and their sense of righteousness that was established from God was broken. 
And they were alienated from God because of their sin, and they were no longer righteous before God. And so the effect of sin, or one of the effects of sin, is that we seek to find righteousness and identity and value in other places. Why do we do this? It is because we were created to receive our righteousness from something outside of us, namely from God. But because that relationship has been broken, we can't inherently create a sense of righteousness within ourselves to make ourselves feel okay. So we constantly are looking outward to other people and to other things to give us a sense of righteousness, identity, and value that they are never meant to be able to give. And so all of life then is a longing for and a seeking after a source of righteousness. It is a struggle to try to justify ourselves. But self-justification is rooted in unbelief. Another way to say it is, it is rooted in the belief that I can justify myself before God by my performance. Which is also to say that Jesus' performance and that His righteousness is not enough for me. And then when I screw up and I mess up and I sin, then it's all up to me to pay for it. I must make the sacrifices, the right sacrifices. I must self-atone and beat myself up. I must work harder, which is also to say that Jesus' death in my place isn't enough for me. To speak or to seek to establish our own righteousness And to pursue a right standing with God as if it were by works is the essence of unbelief. It is to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It is to exchange the truth of God for a lie. And Paul will have none of that. He says that it is their unbelief, their unwillingness to submit to God's righteousness by faith that they stumble over the stumbling stone and therefore they are not saved but the gospel offers to us a righteousness that comes from god christ is the righteousness of god how did the gentiles who did not have the law of god and were not even seeking god how is it that they attained righteousness it was a gift of faith They did not seek to establish their own righteousness before God, but they received the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus. Because Jesus is the righteousness of God. Romans 1, 16 and 17, the gospel is the power of God for salvation because in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The gospel is all about the righteousness that comes from God to us. So the gospel tells us that you have a problem. You are not righteous, but God is righteous. And in order to have a right relationship with God, you need to be righteous. In order to become a part of his family and delivered from his wrath and restored in fellowship, you need to be, there needs to be a righteousness. And so God has revealed through the gospel the way to attain righteousness, and that is by faith in Christ. Because Jesus is the righteousness of God. And so when we trust in Jesus, he takes upon himself all of our unrighteousness and he gives to us his perfect righteousness. So that when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ in you as though it was yours like plagiarism. 
God sees Jesus' perfect righteousness credited to you as though it belongs to you. And that is what the gospel offers you. It is faith through Christ is the way and the only way to attain righteousness. Because Jesus is our righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. He is the purpose and He is the goal of the law. He is the entire point for which the law is pointing to. Everyone who looks to Him, He is for them the fulfillment of the righteousness of God and the fulfillment of the law. Jesus is our righteousness, which is how Paul sums it up in 1 Corinthians 5.21. For God made Him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That's how we attain it, by being in Him. He is the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is to lead us to Jesus by faith so that in Him we would be righteous. And so to those who seek to establish their own righteousness, Jesus to them is a stumbling stone. He's a rock of offense. But to those who by faith look to Jesus for righteousness, He is the rock of ages. He's the cleft that hides them. We sing that song often here, but think about the lyrics. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded sides which flow be for me a double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. Not the labors of my hands can ever fulfill the law's commands. Should my zeal never fade, and all of my efforts be weighed. None of it for sin can atone. You must save. And you alone. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress. Helpless I come to thee for grace. Wretched I am to the fount I fly. Wash me Savior lest I die. So how do we respond to all of this? How do we respond to this magnificent and weighty and even difficult doctrine of God's sovereignty and election and the reality that of, the per, of those who are perishing? Because oftentimes we come to this chapter and this, uh, this theological weightiness as though it's cold and, and unengaging and like an academic exercise. But that's not how Paul responds at all. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. He says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they might be saved. It matters deeply to Paul. The beginning of Romans 9, 2 and 3, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself could be accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen in the flesh. This isn't some theological exercise for Paul. It's not an abstract issue for him. It's not some kind of theological debate that he's trying to win. It matters deeply to Paul. He's emotionally involved because those who are stumbling over the stumbling stone are his brothers, his kinsmen in the flesh. They're people that he knows. They're people that he cares about. They're people that, that he loves. And yet they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge because they don't know Jesus. And because they don't know Jesus as their righteousness, they are not saved. 
And so, yes, Paul is engaging in this in his mind, but his heart is also engaged in this. In verse in chapter 10, my heart's desire and prayer for them is that they might be saved. It is precisely because Paul believes in the sovereignty of God, and it is because he cares so deeply for those that are around him that he prays. That he prays. Understand that our prayer life, whether we pray or what we pray about, reveals what we truly believe in our heads and our hearts. Paul knows God is sovereign. But it does not make him passive. It actually compels him to action. You see, because of our sinfulness, there are at least two dangers in how we respond to God's sovereignty. First is that we be, can become passive. We can become indifferent. We can become even fatalistic in our reasoning and our desires. And so we can think and feel something like, well, because God is sovereign, whatever is going to happen is going to happen. So there's really nothing I can do about it. And so we don't pray for the lost, for their salvation. And oftentimes, if we're honest, we just don't pray at all. We become callous and indifferent to the fact that the lost are perishing. But this is not how Paul responds to it. It is because God is sovereign. It is because God is sovereign that in God's uh, sovereignty that he looks to God and he prays that God would open up their hearts, that they would believe he pleads with God. He, he feels this deep sorrow and unceasing anguish at the beginning of Romans 9, and he feels this deep longing for that they might be saved in the beginning of chapter 10. And that's the first danger, is that we can just become callous. But the second danger is that we might just simply reject the doctrine of election. That God freely chooses who will be saved. And you believe that God is not the final authority, but man is the one who ultimately decides who and when enters the kingdom of God. And so you can't ask God to save anybody. You can't actually pray the scriptures like Ezekiel 11. God, take out of them a, a heart of flesh and put into them a new heart. Or a heart of stone and put into them a new heart. Or Deuteronomy, circumcise their heart that they might love you. Or Ezekiel, Father, put a spirit within them and cause them to walk in your statutes. Or, t- or Second Timothy, Lord, grant them repentance that th- and the knowledge of the truth that they might escape the snares of the devil. Or Acts 16, open up their eyes that they might believe the gospel. The reason why you can't pray these kinds of prayers is because it places God in the right to save. It places God, not man, as the final authority of salvation. And so if you ask God to do any of these things, then you're asking him to to be the one to actually save them. And so how then do you pray if you believe that man and not God makes the final decision about salvation? But Paul, in his entire argument in Romans, and particularly in Romans 9, leaves no room for man to save himself. He prays, my heart's desire and prayer for them is that to God is that they might be saved. Paul is praying that God would save the Jews who do not believe in Jesus. He prays to God for their salvation, precisely because God is sovereign and must act to save them if they are to be saved. And so Paul feels this deeply. He's emotionally involved. And in that same passion and unceasing anguish and a heart's desire, it should move us to pray 
for the salvation of our families and friends and acquaintances and others, to pray the scriptures of, of, uh, back to God, to pray the prayers back to God, the promises back to God. God, take out of their flesh the heart of stone and put into them a new heart. Lord, circumcise their heart that they might love you. Father, put into them a spirit within them that will cause them to walk in your statutes. Father, open up their eyes that they might see and believe the gospel. Grant to them repentance and a knowledge of truth that they might escape the snares of the evil one. Crucify the mind of the flesh that is so unwilling to submit to your law. And give them the mind of the spirit that will rule their life. In other words, we pray as Paul prayed. Father, my heart's desire and prayer to you is that you would save them. So do you believe that God actually saves? Do you believe that God will save? Are you praying for them? Who are the them? Are you praying for them? If not, why not? What is keeping you from earnestly praying for their salvation? And if you find yourself like me, often passive and indifferent, without a deep sorrow or an unceasing anguish in your heart, then I would encourage you to pray. Ask the Spirit to remind you of the free and undeserving grace that God has given to you that brought you to Christ. And as you meditate on this undeserving, gracious work in your own life, the more you, you do, the more you will begin to feel the compassion and the desire for that same work to be done in the life of others. Ask God to change your heart in this matter. To cause you to love a love for the lost to grow, to pray what Paul prays in First Thessalonians 3.12. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and to all men. To love people, to be burdened for their salvation, for, their, for the lost, is a work of God in our hearts. It's not natural to us. We have a self-love, and we often pray in that way. But the gift of God's grace in us is to make our hearts increase and abound. For love for others. God is sovereign. Righteousness can only be found in Christ. Do we pray. For the salvation of others. Let's pray. Father God we come. This morning. And Father these are heavy and weighty things. And so we ask that you. Would open up our hearts to see. The weighty matters of election, that they would be good news to us, that we would seek not to establish our own righteousness, but find our righteousness in Christ and in Him alone. And Father, would you stir within us a, a burden and a deep sorrow for those that we know who are not believers of Jesus, that we, like Paul, would pray, that we would pray and ask you to work to save. We pray and ask these things in Christ's name. So every week we gather and we take communion with one another as a way to re a visual reminder of the gospel. It reminds us of Jesus' life and of Jesus' death. Through Jesus' life, His perfect obedience to the Father, Jesus earned for us the righteousness that we could never earn that God requires. He lives for us. And by faith in Him, He gives us that righteousness so that we might in Him 
be the righteousness of God. And through his death, Jesus shed his own blood as a sacrifice. He was passively obedient to the Father. Jesus paid the debt that we owe. He took our unrighteousness and he died the death that we deserve so that in him we might find forgiveness and we might be reconciled back to God. And so communion is a means of grace. It's a visual reminder of Jesus' righteousness and his atoning death. It's a gift to us who believe. Jesus instituted this the night before he was to be crucified. We read in in Matthew's gospel. Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to the disciples. And he said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. And I tell you that I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's house. This is the body of Christ broken for you. And this is the blood of Christ poured out for you. Stand as we continue to worship this morning. Only you, Lord, I want to 
just pray with me. Uh, Father, thank you for uh, just the, the seed of the gospel and the, the fruit of the gospel that you've placed in our, our lives and our hearts to go into a world and to serve you and to point others uh, to find their hope in, in you alone, not in anything of this world. And Lord, I pray that you would, uh, as Andy was speaking about this morning, that you would just uh, increase our desire for those that are around us that don't know you, that they would know you. That that desire would come from uh, the seabed of, of trusting in you, trusting in your sovereignty, trusting that you are in control, that you, um, Lord, have a desire to, uh, to save all, to love all, yet you have chosen some um, to highlight and to emphasize that you are uh, glorious in, in every way and that your glory will always shine through through all of history and through all of creation. So, Lord, I pray that you give us, just release us uh, just to pray for those that are around us and for salvation to come and for the blood of Christ to be their only hope and that they wouldn't find themselves fighting to be morally correct or uh, find themselves wanting to be uh, liked by this world, but, Lord, that they find themselves broken in a place of surrender at the cross. Thank you for bringing us that believe to that place. And it's all for your glory. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, you can be seated. We've got a couple of announcements uh, for you, and then, then we'll uh, be, at, be done for this morning. Uh, but thanks for coming here. If you're online with us this morning, thanks for being joining us online. Uh, if you're interested in getting our newsletter, then please send, send us an email at codechurch at gmail.com. That's the way to get the newsletter and all these announcements. Um, Last week we had our business meeting, and so we had 100% uh, affirmation for Josh Bauck to become an elder here at Church of the Apostles, so he has been affirmed, so that's good news. If you guys see Josh, just congratulate him. And this is Joe, his son over here on drums, and so Joe is playing the drums for us this morning, which is cool. Yeah, good job, Joe. Uh, the next, we had a men's breakfast yesterday. It was great. had 30 guys come out, and it was wonderful. We're going to do that again on March 27th, which is the last Saturday of March, so plan on attending that uh, coming up in March. We have our Code of Kids training, so if you're interested in, in serving, uh, if you're online with us and you're interested in serving at Code of Kids on a Sunday morning at 1030, then we're going to have a training on March 13th from 8 to 12. Breakfast will be provided, so please come and be a part of that with us. And then we have Easter right around the corner, uh, so there's a lot of things that are going to go on around Easter. On Good Friday, which is the Friday before Easter, we will have an art show uh, here at the church, which we do annually. And we, if you're an artist or even if you like uh, to draw or create things, then we invite you to bring an original piece. Um, the art show is around the theme, Stations of the Cross. And there's more information at the welcome desk. There's an entry form and there's information about what the art might look like. So please plan on bringing some art or spread the news to any of your art friends to come and um, submit a piece of art there. On the Saturday after, uh, before Easter, we'll have an egg hunt. It's uh, one of our family fun days where we invite all the families to come out and the community to come out, and we'll do an egg hunt where we spread out, obviously, outside, and, uh, and we'll have a fun egg hunt, and we do a jump castle, and we do some, um, some food. So please plan on coming to that as well. And then we'll have our Easter service on that Sunday morning where we'll worship uh, Jesus, the risen Lord, uh, there. Also, we decorate uh, the sanctuary during Easter with Easter lilies, and you can uh, 
asked to request an Easter lily in memory of or in honor of someone, there's a sign-up sheet at the desk. It's 15 bucks, um, and we put we have a little bulletin that we put in um, in the chairs that will just designate that you're mentioning someone in honor or in memory of uh, during Easter. And so you can do that. It's a great way uh, just to, to love on, on others in this in the community or those that have gone before us and are now with the Father just in memory of them. And I think that's all of the announcements for this morning. So please stand with me for the benediction. Jude 24, 25 reads, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow.